Hello and welcome to the Insight is Capital podcast. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My very special guest today is Mary Hagerman, a multiple-time industry award-winning wealth advisor based at Raymond James in Montreal with over 30 years of experience. Over the last decade, Mary has made a name for herself as an authority on overcoming financial anxiety, and she's a regular contributor to the Globe and Mail and the Financial Post as well. She is also the author of the financial bestseller, The Black Belt Investor. In the aftermath of the 2008-2009 recession, Mary unwittingly became one of the first female portfolio managers to build discretionary portfolios of ETFs for her clients. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Mary, welcome to the show. It's really great to have you. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. So Mary, um, uh, to start things off, before we get to talking... And it's great to see you again, by the way, yeah. because I think the last the last time we we saw each other was face to face at the yeah. uh, the Inside ETFs uh, Canada conference in Montreal. Um, but Mary, to start things off, before we get to talking, tell us about the arc of your career, how you got into the advisory business in the first place, and how you got from your beginnings to where you are now, and what you're up to these days. Well, that could take a lot of time, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I'll, try, I'll, I'll jump right in there. So many years ago, right, uh, pretty much when I was just graduating from university, I almost went directly into media. I actually worked for CBC Radio in, Co in Quebec City. I had received a bursary to study in Quebec and learn French. Um, and so I went to work for CBC. I loved it. But I had this nagging feeling that it was, I had this little voice saying, you know, Mary, you can talk about the people who are making the news or you can make the news. And I really enjoyed working with money. I had studied for the um, financial, financial advisors test and stuff like that, just kind of because I like that sort of thing. And I decided that I was going to leave the newsroom at that time. I was working for radio, just starting with radio news at Montreal. And uh, I left to continue to write about finances and delve into the sort of media aspect of finances, but also to help people with their financial planning and manage their money. And from there, my career just took um, a bunch of twists and turns over the years um, because you could not have multiple licenses at that time. So right. even though I'd passed the advisors, uh, the ILOC um, license, I got an insurance license, I got my financial planning license, and I couldn't sort of uh, put everything into place until the glass ceiling broke down and uh, we right. were able to have multiple licensing. And so from there, my career just continued on, but always with the financial planning uh, base that uh, was there from the onset. It was actually quite particular because at that time, uh, there were stockbrokers and there were financial right. planners. Right? 
So if you were a stockbroker, right. you were trading and you weren't necessarily talking to people about uh, book budgets and this and that. And it was like, how much money do you have? How much you want to invest? And what this is what we're buying. Um, yeah, yeah. So I really took an early entry into financial planning, which I very much enjoyed. And then from there, a couple changes of firms. Um, started my own group with my former employers. And when the 2008-2009 financial crisis struck, well, then there was a, it was another huge turning point in my career. So right. I don't know how much you want me to go on from there because I can say a lot well, about I, them. Well, yeah. Let, let me ask you, like, I, I mean, it, I think it was a turning point for a lot of people in the business and a lot of companies. Um, but for you, how, how, when you, how did you decide when you did to become a discretionary portfolio manager? Like what were the events that led you or precipitated that decision? Well, a lot of things were happening in the business. Like I say, when I started out, it was transactional and, you know, people were right. stockbrokers. Uh, then there, the, the concept of portfolio management became increasingly um, popular uh, mutual funds changed the way people were investing. We started talking to clients about having professional money managers uh, managing a basket of stocks within a mutual fund product and then charging them through the product. Um, so right. as this whole concept of portfolio management uh, grew, there was on the side of course the concept too, the, 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 the portfolio manager role, but that was more of an institutional or a quasi-institutional title. But then it started to, to be incorporated more and more into retail with the idea that you could charge clients fee-for-service and manage their money. And I, right. I bought into that. I thought that makes a lot of sense because what we're looking for is to really have a transparent relationship with the client, show them how we're managing their money and charge for the work that we do. But it wasn't that simple. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it never is, is it? No, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's huge. And to ask somebody who already has, you know, a certain amount of assets under, but you can't become a discretionary manager with, you know, a, 20 million, 30 million of assets under no. management. You need at least 50 million and more. And so when you've already got that running in a setup where you're getting uh, paid through the products that you're using, like mutual funds, right. well, it's a whole new arc and strategy and, and effort to um, speak with the clients you have, to yep. tell them how it is that you want to change your working relationship so that you can be fee-for-service. And it really didn't, I mean, I was, you know, most people did not jump on that bandwagon. It was just like too much effort. And it took, a, it's taken a long time for many people. And I think these statistics in the industry are such that, you know, the fee-for-service component of, of, of our business is still relatively small. But uh, right. where it became convincing to me was when I decided to work with ETFs or exchange traded funds. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's not an easy jump to go from transactional uh, a transactional business uh, process to a fee based process because there's a big gap in there 
in terms of, of how, uh, how you get paid as an advisor. And so bridging, I mean, the, the key to it is how you go about, uh, on the, on the business side, how you go about bridging from the old, the, the, you know, the legacy process to the new process and how you bridge, you know, how you bridge yourself professionally in terms of your, your income and. And then there's, and then, as you said, there's the, there's the bridge that, that you have to build between you and your clients in terms of getting them on side with, with changing how they pay for their services with you. And, and so, so there's a lot of, a lot of moving parts. And I think, <laughs> I think there's still, there's still a, a large percentage of the, uh, sort of wirehouse or broker, uh, um, advisors who have not made the jump yet and are still, are still more in a transactional business than, than, um, you know, the fee-based, uh, model. And I, I, I think, I think logistically it makes a huge amount of sense to be in the discretionary model in the fee-based model. And they're not, they're not mutually, ex they're, they're, they can be mutually exclusive, right? I mean, you can be a fee-based advisor and not discretionary. Yeah, and, sure. and, and so, so when you, the, I think mm -hmm. the logistical problem, as I saw it was always that, that, you know, when, when you had a, a major, uh, market event happen, um, logistically, unless you had your, your clients all invested in an all weather framework of investing, and even that's not a flawless process, um, in order to, in order to deal with the anxiety that, that a major market event like 2008, 2009 causes, you literally have to get in touch with each and every one of your clients and have the conversation about what is, you know, what is happening, what's to be done, what does the client want? What do you think the client should do? And, and, and that's logistically, it can be a nightmare yeah. in terms of of, of, you know, whether, what kind of changes you want to make to your clients' portfolios, you know, on a wholesale basis, there's timing error issues that, that, that rise up from that. And so, so I guess that's what I was getting at when I was asking you what yeah. precipitated, you know, what precipitated you to, to choose a discretionary model. Maybe I've, maybe I've buried the lead already. <laughs> no, that, actually, you know? actually you haven't, you have not brought up that, that, this sort of hook. That got me to be discretionary. Well, okay. the, the industry was living towards that, right? Yeah. But following the 2008 2009 financial crisis, I was like, you know, just devastated that yeah. clients had had to go through this and to see the value in their portfolios plummet. Not over one month or two months, like the pandemic experience, but yeah. we're talking like 14 months of, of down markets. It was torturous for everyone, for the clients, for every advisor. And to this day, anybody who's managed money through the financial crisis, 2000, right. 2009, will tell you it, it, it was the worst time for, for all of us. So when I step back from yeah, that, 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 that. Sorry, that, that was actually truly the watershed moment of the last, oh, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, and the whole of the, of the entire <laughs> cycle. That was the watershed moment was, oh, no, was, it was 08, it was, 09. It was just yeah. so, it was, it just, was brutal. It was so long and painful. 
And yeah. clients wanted Indian servers, and we didn't have any. Uh, yeah. And also, there was this real notion that the financial the financial sector was corrupt because that's where the crisis took hold, right? Yeah. And it took governments a long time to react because they had to sort through things, and it's not like they were going to start throwing money at people who might be guilty of of creating products that should never have existed. And anyway, I could, we could do another, we could do another interview on that, but let's just yeah. say that the big revelation for me following the 2008, 2009 crisis was that I had started using exchange traded funds and the, uh, the, the sort of moral of the story following the crisis was that the indices had performed better than most yeah. active managers. Uh, so certainly the buy and hold strategy was a winning strategy, right? But to buy and hold with an index, uh, you came out further ahead and this financial industry statistics showed that you came out farther ahead than if you had paid a money manager to try to do trading through that period, even if you d you still stayed in equity, et cetera, et cetera. So right. I came away from this saying, look, I'm going to change the way I manage money. Exchange traded funds to me look to be the most, um, the, the best way to allocate most of my clients' money. I won't say all because it's not like I, I totally given up on mutual funds or individual stocks. Right. But definitely these, the information coming out post-recession on, on uh, ETFs was they had done a stellar job uh, for helping clients maintain their capital through the full market cycle. The other thing is, I mean, I'm not a believer in, in you know, turning over a portfolio uh, 100% in a year. So it's not right. like I'm trading and charging uh, fees on trading. So that really led me to, if, if, if I was going to stay in the business, I was going to have a um, primarily ETF-based portfolio models. I would right. be discretionary and fee-based. So getting back to the, you know, why it's tough for people to make that uh, transition is, and especially at the time, because, you know, we weren't as electronic as today. It's like a ton of paperwork for clients to yeah. sign, you know, and it's like, in addition <laughs> to education, and I was like one of the first people out there saying, okay, we've got to have a look at ETFs. Clients should be considering ETFs for their portfolios. There weren't a lot of them, right? There weren't a right. ton back then. So I was saying, we have a sufficient selection of ETFs to do a very good job creating a portfolio for clients. Um, the best way to do it is to hand the reins over to me. I'll explain to you what an ETF is. This is what I'll charge you. And we, we move forward. But right. I had to do all these courses. I had to educate to become a discretionary manager. I had, right, to, right. I, I had to educate my clients on what an ETF was. You know, sounds a lot like a mutual fund, but not quite. And then obviously putting together the portfolios the compliance was very thick at the firm that I was with. I had to 
submit my candidature for a portfolio manager, not once, but twice. Right. Okay. And, oh, okay. Uh, and I won't say it's because I'm a woman, but I won't say that that's not because of the fact that I'm a woman, because right, right. I actually became, I think, the second, um, the second female discretionary portfolio manager with my firm at the time. And I was definitely the first woman to put together ETF-based uh, discretionary portfolio models. So I was told at the time when I made my application that, um, well, you know, Mary, you're so successful. Um, <laughs> you know, bringing in clients, you know, why don't yeah. you look to be the developer and work alongside a man who's already a portfolio manager? So, yeah, nice. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah. that's it. And I'm not, like I say, you know, I don't want to point fingers, but I will yeah. say that that whole process for me, in addition to being hugely work intensive, was extremely humiliating. But yeah, I can. Well, I, I mean, I can. Yeah, I mean, if you when you're when you're when you're met with that sort of with that sort of reaction and 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 uh, feedback, it, it's it, it can be it could potentially be disheartening. It you know, was it, it was yeah. totally disheartening. Uh, yeah. Why I didn't <laughs> just march out of there and do something else, I don't know. But I guess yeah. it's the fighter in me because, as you know. I'm a fighter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the fighter in me said, Mary, you're not going to let them get away with this. You're going back there and you're becoming a discretionary manager. Now, I must say that the whole process now with the firm in question has totally changed. It's gone from, uh, you know, very few selected to, uh, Basically, you do the you you do what you need to do to become a, a portfolio manager, right. and we we guarantee you acceptance in the program. So I think they come full circle on that too, which was very smart on the, their their end. Because let's face it, advisors who are discretionary portfolio managers are the easiest advisors for compliance to follow. I mean, we have doc, we have our portfolio um management and data is measured continually our portfolios are always checked we're usually like in my case i run a handful of models 20 different models right right most firms today uh from a compliance standpoint from an asset management standpoint look very favorable, favorably on people becoming discretionary money managers. But the work is so tough that, um, and of course you leverage them by having uh, more assets under management. Right. So what we're seeing now, what we've been seeing over the past 10, even 15 years is the teams are growing very big, right? And yeah. the best way for people to enter into that realm of becoming an associate portfolio manager, then a portfolio manager, is often through acceptance or entry into a larger team. Yeah. Well, I I mean, if I, I have to say, like, if I was ever going to, th if I was thinking of going back into, <clears throat> into the, uh, you know, uh, advisory business, um, 
I mean, of course, from the time I left till now, I mean, it has completely, uh, you know, the, the industry has completely upended. So, you know, I, I, I would rethink the whole thing, but I absolutely agree with you that if you're a new, uh, advisor coming into this business, you really do need to, um, start off under a, a more senior advisor's wing in order to get your sea legs, get to get you prepared and get you, you know, get you on the road to building your own, you know, your own practice as well by, by taking on clients of your own during that, that, uh, that growing period. It's, it's, uh, it's not a business that you can just hop into and start making money like the old days. <laughs> and, and, no, no. you know, I mean, for sure not. And, uh, I think the firms, you know, generally are looking for people, you know, the, the bar is set relatively high with yeah. regards to what your business should look like after two, three, four years. Right. So, yeah. um, but, you know, our, our business has evolved in a way that has become, I think, very exciting for everybody who has a, a, a job like mine. But yeah. it's also become so much better for the client. Um, the client now has, like when I got into, when I became a discretionary manager, the whole idea of having portfolio fees and transactions that were, were transparent to the client um it was new because you know the whole mutual fund um system of managing money for clients kind of kept that in the in the background and the client never really you know from time to time we get the question well, yeah how are you paid for this work well yeah. now everything's up front the client sees exactly what's um going on and we have access to to tools and then to systems computer systems too because Absolutely, there's been a yeah. lot of evolution there for, for managing money that uh, just make it a lot easier for us and the client has access to products especially with the um you know with with the exchange traded funds that have become so popular over the years uh, with good reason uh, the individual investor can have the same portfolio with you know almost the same fees as a, an institutional portfolio, right? You definitely is yeah, access. Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah. A, that's, that's, that's a remarkable development. I think that's, that's the, you know, the so-called democratization of, 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 of uh, investing. And um, it's, a, I mean, it's a, you, you, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. It's both an exciting time to be an investor, but it's especially an exciting time to be an advisor. Um, because of, because of the changes that have taken place in the industry, that the technology developments that have happened. Um, so, um, Mary, tell us about your investment process and, and some of your day-to-day, -day, how you run your practice. Well, my investment process is pretty much regulated. I mean, I like the idea of the decision-making. My philosophy is that, uh, Money management works best when there's as little emotion in the process as possible. So right. that's why I've gravitated. One of the reasons I gravitated towards exchange traded funds. So um, I try to keep the decision making that I have to do based on parameters that are set up on my uh, for my portfolios with regards to uh, geographic 
allocation um, and asset allocation. So from the onset, I built portfolios that have a investor policy statement, which is what I show clients who want to, to do business with me. And I explain to right. them how that model of asset allocation and geographic allocation gets filled using primarily always exchange traded funds that I pick. And to, in order to pick those products, well, I have, I do my due diligence with people who are in the business, the major exchange traded funds companies that, that I'm sure you, you, you know very well. Right. So I speak with those people and I also have an exchange traded fund specialist in-house at Raymond James. I have conversations with him. So my portfolios are monitored on a, a daily basis. Uh, I'm always looking at my portfolios, my money's in my portfolios. Um, but on a monthly basis, we look at returns, we look at what's, what's um, um, how the portfolios are evolving. And the basic premise is, if it's so hard to beat the index, Okay, the broad market index of right. S&P 500 or the TSX, uh, then I will pick sectors only if they can maintain outperformance over time. So that's what I'm looking for. Once I build the geographic um, allocation, I can decide to overweight or under, underweight. But right. the safe approach to, to money management is to not deviate too far from your model. Like I said, I, I don't like emotions to, to get in the way. So I stick to my model and then I monitor how my positions are doing with regards to, um, which with regards to the broad indices. And then there's other decisions that get layered on top of that. It could be foreign exchange, for example. Right. Um, it could be you know, the outlook for, for interest rates. So what am I going to be doing with the uh, duration? But essentially, I can distill it down to a fairly simple process that is simple, but not easy. And, yes. the, reason, <laughs> yeah. and the reason why it's not easy is because it's not easy to eliminate emotions from the investment process. And, Absolutely, yeah, and to be regular and disciplined, which is why I wrote my book. Can I talk about yep. my book? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're we're, <laughs> we're going to get to that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um. So, what's your what what's your uh, what's your typical day like? Oh, so my typical day is um, get started the day before, right? So I finish yep. off every day with a, a discussion with my team. What have we done through the day? Is there any stuff that's getting left over? Is there, a, you know, what are we on the lookout for? Um, I have meetings planned into my agenda ahead of time. So we, I'm always preparing for a meeting at least a day and a half ahead. And then when the morning starts out, it's just checking the, the news, the data, what's coming in off the uh, what you might want to call the wires. Um, yeah. And I read the, the financial you know, papers as well. Then I look at how transactions have settled from the day before in our portfolios. Um, I check birthdays. I love to 
Mm-hmm. I, lo- I love to have an excuse to reach out to clients and say, hey, it's your birthday. Happy birthday. I, I think that's important too. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I look at the portfolios and I see based on the discussion from the day before and how we plan the week, how, how the day unfolds. And I usually, if there's some very, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of, if it's a busy time for a certain part of the markets, a certain sector, a certain asset class, I might have calls lined up with people or uh, to discuss that. Right. I mean, every day there'll be, or at least a, a couple, there's a, a, a time devoted to client communication because I put out a monthly newsletter, which uh, is very important. It's a, it's a great way to keep in touch with clients and it gives them a good idea of how I see things and what's happening in my life. Uh, because it's, you know, I like to add a little other personal stuff too. So, right. so that's it. And right now, because of the pandemic, a lot of meetings are Zoom, but uh, I do have uh, in-person meetings with clients. I'm going to the office, not every day, but on occasion. So the week gets set up for the week before, the day gets set up the day before, and it just kind of gets distilled down to that. So on days when I decide to trade, those days are have been exceptional too. They also get prepared at least the day yeah. before. I've done my information and set up why it is I want to trade, what it is I'm going to do. And then I always have my assistant uh, trading with me. And then the entire morning is devoted to trading and going through the portfolios and making sure everything's fine because we trade, you know, millions and if not tens of millions of dollars yeah. at a time and, and, and several client accounts. So we want to make sure everything goes well. So the stress in our business is there. There's no question. Yeah. And getting back to the fact that you want to manage your emotions, it's all part of that. It's, it's not simple because the work in itself is one thing and keeping my stress levels at a, you know, at a yeah. good level to make me alert and to make me, um, I believe very much in somatic awareness. I've seen so much market movement over the past 30 plus years that yep. I can get a good feeling just from what I read in the morning, how to see the markets through the day. And I, I think, okay, you know, it's time to be looking at this. What are the numbers telling me, et cetera, et cetera. But I have to keep my head on straight and I have to keep my emotions <laughs> under control especially when the markets are really volatile, which happens quite a bit, right? And we have clients who will, you know, say, oh, listen, I have an additional X amount of money for you. You put, yeah. it, you put it in when you think it's a good time. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, surprise me. Yeah. So I kind of I kinda always have, you know, there's always new money coming in. And you kind of want to have, you know, and an intelligence around is this a good time? As yeah. I as I yeah. tell clients, and I like to 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 cite uh, John Bobo from Vanguard, who said, in his sixty years of investing, he's never known anyone who's even known anyone who can time the markets, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I 
you know, we, we've had conversations about this on one of our other shows and, <laughs> and, um, you know, with, um, uh, Corey Hofstein and, and it's, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's, I think it's one of those subjects that isn't really talked about a great deal. Like in it's like, it's not really, uh, sort of spoken writ large in the market. It's something that, that you encounter, um, you know, in your day-to-day -day process, but, but it can become a really big issue. Uh, you know, as you said, I, I, I loved your, your, the way you put it, which was that, do you want to be the first client in or the last client in or conversely, uh, it, you know, mm -hmm. out first one out or last one out yeah. or somewhere in the middle. And, and I, I think, you know, the problem that happens is that even though you, you could have the most, um, disciplined process and, you know, in terms of timing and, and yet, even though your clients own, you know, across model portfolios, the same assets, one's one client's performance because of when they started versus another client's performance because of when the, you know, client B started are entirely different. Yeah. Right. And then, and then you have that challenge and I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, when that does happen, you, you're sitting there thinking, wow, the, the, you know, A and B are in the same portfolio, but look at the difference in results. They started in March, they started in September. Like if you use last year as a baseline, you know, client A got in, you know, John got in, 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 uh, the end of March and, and, uh, Mary, you know, got in, in the end of August. What, I mean, the difference in, in performance for matching portfolios for those two timeframes is completely different. Well, certainly, and, the, I think that's a great point. And certainly when you use a short time frame, that's the case. Yeah. But what you're speaking to um, really underscores the importance of good cash management. And I right. think that I devote a lot of time explaining that to clients, validating it with clients, because as I tell them, I'm not necessarily going to know when the markets are going to go up and down. And for sure, we get corrections all through a bull market. So the market right. can still have a long-term upward trend, but we're going to see periods where there's pullbacks. So clients who have any type of anticipation of withdrawing from their portfolios, we have to have discussed this. We have to know the amounts of money, what, what we do with it, how we're going to plan for this. Because that's where people can really get hit, um, is if the market goes right. down and, and even if it's not an emotional thing, like I'm scared I'm getting out, it could be, oh, well, I, you know, there's this great cottage and I, I really have to buy it now or it's going to go. And there goes yeah. 400,000 when the markets have just gone down 15%, let's say, okay. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, that's just added a lot of money to your cottage. <laughs> but so cash management has become extremely important these days with interest rates so low and clients have a reluctance to put any money into cash or quasi cash. Yeah. So the conversations have to be there with regards to what are your plans um, for any types of withdrawals. And I will double the importance of cash management for people who stopped working, who are retired, let's say, because there's no more money coming in, right? It's yeah. all it's all money pretty much going out. So uh, yeah, I th I think can that yeah. can make a big difference on returns. 
I mean, you see, I, like thinking about it from, from, you know, our audience's point of view, I mean, these, these nuanced conversations that you can have with your clients that you can provide them guidance on, these are the types of conversations at the highly personal level that, that really, um, make you a valuable advisor. Right. I mean, I, I think, I think when, when, when you can, you know, problem solve, of course, like, like, you know, given the problem that you just described, you know, the market's down 15% client clients looking for $400,000 for a cottage at the exact worst moment, you know, or one of the exact worst yeah. moments, you know, or how, or how about, you know, March 23rd, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, the, the, the sequence of the sequence of returns risk is just, you know, abominable, right? It's, it's like, this couldn't be the worst time for you to do this. Is there some other way we can manage the, the transaction so that you're not, you know, you're not shooting yourself in the foot. And, and so that, that's where you come in, right? That's where you come in as the advisor say, okay, maybe it would be better if we kept the asset and borrowed against it or you know, moved some, you know, did something with one of your other assets so that you could release that cash flow and make it available for your transaction now, and then manage the, manage the, uh, liquidation at some other point that's required to make up for it. I mean, so, so that's really where the engineering comes in. That's where the know-how of, of you as an advisor comes in and really solidifies the relationship, like where, where, you know, your client is never thinking ever, you know, I want to change advisors because like, I can't believe what Mary's done for me, or I can't believe what, <laughs> yeah. you know, or, like, wow. Or you know, I, you know, I can't make a financial decision that's important unless I talk to Mary, you know, we kind of want, yeah. to, we want to have that sort of relationship with, with our clients for sure. Because but that this is where, but this is, this is where referrals come from too. This is where referrals are born, isn't it? Like it's at that moment, like that client that you, that we did, that we're describing, you know, they're socially involved. They're talking to their friends. They're bound to say to their friend, you know, I was going to sell, you know, $400,000 of my portfolio to buy this absolutely fantastic cottage. But, you know, my advisor told me there's a better way to do it. Like, let's do it this way. Yeah. Right? And I can't, I, I, you know, I never even thought about it, but she came at me and she said, she said, you know, sorry, I don't think this is a good idea to do it this way. How about this way? Let's do it. Let's do it. You know, let's use uh, solution B and, and, you know, this way you're not shooting yourself in the foot. And, you know, they'll be like, I think, I think when you can do that for clients, they'll be like forever indebted to you for, for the value that you've provided. And it's not that, you know, they owe you something, but, but <laughs> you can't, you can't, the, 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 the uh, impact on the, on the value of the loyalty is so, is so immense at those moments that, that when they tell somebody else about it, that, that excitement and that passion about what you did for them makes that person say, you know, do you mind if I call her? Absolutely. absolutely. Can you, can you introduce me? Yeah. You know, I really like, I've got some, some, some things I'd like to talk to an advisor about. Can I talk to yours? And it's, and, it's, and, uh, it's, it's such know. a gratifying part of the business. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, you've hit the nail right on the head there because it's certainly what's kept me in the business. And boy, I love the work that I do yeah. is that I really do sense that I make a difference in clients' lives. And as you were saying, referrals, 
can come from great returns, but they can also come from problem solving. And yeah. there's nothing more touching than a client who says, I have a friend, I think you can help her. I think you can help her the way you help me. You know, I told her about you, I told yeah. her what we did. And uh, it's, it's, it's just so rewarding. So, yeah. but these conversations, and I'd like to mention too, like I'm a financial planner. I have the financial planner designation. It's extremely helpful to have, if you're not a financial planner, a financial planner on your team or access to a financial planner so that you can, you know, pull all the different resources together to help your clients. Um, and it's time consuming, right? It's time yeah. consuming sometimes to look at all of the, the different possibilities. But boy, when, when you work out a problem for a client, they're grateful and it leads to good things for the clients and often for the advising too, like you said. Yeah, that's the, those are those critical junctions or junctures in, in a client's life, those crossroads, that is where, that is where you really, um, you know, exponentially increase your value. Yeah. That is where you really, and those are really the proving points. Like when a client's in trouble or when a client has a problem or an issue to solve. I mean, I think, I think when you can, when you can make a client's dream come true at, at what is, you know, for example, a terrible time to do it, um, that's something, it's literally something they will never forget, I think. And you know, it so, doesn't even because. I mean, the, no, it, the, it's just, it's, it's just, you know, the, yeah. the, the, there's, there's all these emotional dilemmas, right? Like I really want to do this, but I don't know how to do it. Or I don't know, you know, that's the, that's the thing. Right. And, and that's where, that's where you can come in as this, you know, as the professional, um, you know, third party, this professional advisor and objectively provide a solution. And, and, and then it becomes very real. It becomes very, you know. Sorry, go ahead, Mary. I... Yeah, no, no, but because you're right, we're, we're on to a very good point here. The, um, you know, I felt in the premise of my book is that you can't be truly happy if you don't have a healthy relationship with money. Yeah. And then often clients are in situations where they're making money. They have enough money to do what they want to do, but they, they feel that they need that permission to move forward, to use their money. And I see this often with women and they come yeah. to me and they feel, they feel insecure. They feel uneasy. They're not sure we're doing the right thing. And I've heard several times, you know, I want to enjoy my money. I want to take advantage of my money, but they're not sure that they're in a position where they can spend the way they want to spend. So when we work together and we apply the financial planning principles and do a plan and have those in-depth conversations, like what's really bugging you, you know? What is it about your money that, that worries you? And what would you really like to do with it and why? And when we go through those conversations and look at the numbers, you know, we can, we can totally change a client's relationship to their money and their, their, their happiness quotient in life because they're absolutely right. getting to do more with their money, spend their money and not feel guilty about either not managing it well, spending too much, not spending it, being too cheap. I mean, there's 
all kinds of emotions. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And if you can, if you can reduce the, the anxiety, um, you know, surrounding that and, and improve, you know, the emotional quality of, 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 you know, their financial life, um, it, it, I mean, it's very Zen. It's very, you know, it's very being able to, you know, get your client to the stage, you know, uh, where, where, you know, they can actually enjoy the fruits of their, you know, the fruits of their work, their work in life. Um, it's, it's a huge, uh, it's a huge hurdle because, you know, we, until we, until we get to the bottom of it, we don't know what, what is the reason why, um, you know, someone has wealth, but isn't happy. Well, and, people don't like to know, talk about money, right? I mean, outside of my office, for sure, when somebody comes to see me, they they know they're going to be having a conversation about money. Uh, but couples, it's the number one reason that couples yeah. uh, fight, right? Um, yeah. And money is so important in our day-to-day lives. Like, by the time we get to noon, we probably already made a couple financial decisions, right? Money is crossing our minds all the time. And in order for it to, for some people, not make them not to obsess about it or be unhappy about it, well, they put it in a little closet in the back room. They keep the door shut. They don't have to look <laughs> it. They don't look in it. You know, they yeah. don't want to know what's in there and they don't want to talk about it. Right. So it's critical in the happiness equation that if we can't get over this reluctance to talk about money, to interact with our money and make it work for us, that we have it, we're not becoming as happy as we could be. So Mary, um, just to change gears a little <clears throat> bit, I, I wanted to ask you um, <laughs> to go back a little bit and ask you, when you began, what was it like when you began um, being a woman in what was, you know, largely a male dominated business. I won't say that it was tough, but it wasn't easy. When I started out, I had my first, excuse me, of three children and he was going to uh, preschool at the time. Right. Uh, you know, fortunately this job offers a lot of flexibility. So it's not like I had to be at the office for a certain time, but it, it was difficult juggling my responsibilities as a young mother yeah. um, with my work. And I also had to work in the evening quite a bit. I would go to activities. I would sometimes meet with clients in the evening. So I was pretty busy and I was, yeah. it just seemed like I was always doing courses. Um, but also as a woman, I saw very little women around me other than the women who were working more in administrative positions. Uh, there were not a lot of women advisors and there were not a whole lot of women who were representing the mutual fund companies and, um, you know, the, the intermediaries who we, we deal right. with. So a lot of the language, a lot of the activities was geared around what do the guys want to do? They, 
the guys yeah. the guys want to go to <clears> hockey <throat> games you know the guys <laughs> like the the cocktail hours and the beer and the stuff like that i had to get home to to get my son out of daycare but um yeah but uh, i will say that um apart from the fact that uh it was quite a, a male-aided industry. The men were always very kind with me, always very charming, and always wanted to 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 help me. And I certainly wouldn't be where I am today if it hadn't been for the help of of some very um, some very great men in this industry who believed yeah. in me. But it it was kind of it was kind of lonely because it was sort of like I was doing the job that usually the guys do. Um, and what makes me, what I find very frustrating is that the statistics with regards to portfolio managers over the past 20 years have barely budged. It's still yeah. like less than 20% who are women. And yet this is such a fantastic job for women. It really is because, I mean, we definitely have all those smarts and the emotional, the EQ to 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 deal with clients, to yeah. to to deal with them in ways that we were talking about earlier, to have those tough conversations, which often make the guys feel a little bit, you know, uncomfortable to ask clients, you know, how are things mm -hmm. going in the couple, <laughs> stuff yeah. like that, you know. But uh, and we have flexibility with our with our work environment that is really conducive to a woman taking time to to bring up her kids and her children and and i would say too that i mean it's still early but i think that the pandemic is going to make things even easier with regards to working from home yeah. and having that kind of flexibility what advice would you have for women wanting to get into the business as I said, I think it's it's a great business for for women. A lot of women work their way up from positions where they're working for an advisor as an assistant advisor, an administrative assistant. So what I would say is you really have to, and I basically always said this to women, you know, it's you can't have everything, at least not at all at once, but you can have a lot over a lifetime. And if you see your career as being a career that spans several decades, which mine is, has, and is still going strong, um, then you can do a lot of things. So it doesn't all have to be jammed into the, to the, the period when we're the, the youngest, the most inexperienced, but yeah. perhaps the best looking. <laughs> um, this business is very kind to aging women. We age like a fine line. We become, mm -hmm. you know, we we just know ourselves. We know our clients better. We know the industry well. We know a lot more about investing. So what I would say to to young women is to aim high, give yourself a long runway, do the courses that are required to get you where you want to go. Because it's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of studying and coursework. Yeah. Uh, make sure people know what you're what you're aiming for so that you can get help. You can network through different associations. Women in ETF is a great association for 
uh, women who are looking to become a lot of different things in the yeah. ETF space, which is huge now. And yeah. if you're working, I would say to young women too, if you're working with an advisor who is not offering you the possibility to move up, well, then change advisors. Because it can become an issue, right? I mean, we, yeah. we're, we're comfortable with our teams, but you, you have someone who works really well with you in a certain position, you kind of don't want to see them move on. But uh, we have to accept that and we have to mentor and encourage the young women yeah. who, who want to go somewhere. And, and conversely, uh, just to add to what you just said, I think a great mentor you know, what, what makes a mentor great is the mentor's desire to see, you know, their mentees go, you know, rise above them, go beyond and be more successful if, if, if that's in the cards. And I, I think, I think that's great advice. That's terrific advice, Mary, for, you know, that if, that if the opportunity is not there to grow within a practice that you're working in, uh, then move on and find one that is that is providing that opportunity, uh, find it, you know, find a, a, a practice and an advisor that you can work with and learn from who is going to push you up and forward. Yes. And I think that, uh, once again, our industry, you kind of have to do some looking on your own because we don't like there's, there's branches, there's companies. Yeah. And in order for you to see the opportunities that might lie outside of your own branch, let's say, or perhaps even outside of your own company, uh, you have to do networking and, and, and talk with people. But I was, I've been invited to speak on, um, you know, women in the, the, the industry. And um, I remember looking out into the room at one point and seeing all these men and telling them, Probably all of you have young women working for you who could become really great in that, in this business. Right. You have to look for these women and you have to help them. And if they ask you for help, for sure you have to help them. Because if not, they're going to go somewhere else. And I think we just, it's, it's an asset to, to a team to have uh, the different sexes, different ages. Uh, this has been proven too. So, I mean, I think it's, it's every uh, advisor with the, with the team should look to having that kind of diversification and integrating women and giving a uh, young woman a chance to perhaps be assistant portfolio manager and eventually a portfolio manager. That's great, Mary. Um, so Mary, let's talk about your book. Yay. Let's talk about let's talk about the the black belt investor because it's such a great book. But uh, you know, tell us about what what uh, we can learn from from uh, your book. Well, thanks for asking about it. It's my like fifth year anniversary of the book, and I think I'm going to work on a new edition, the post pandemic black belt investor. Wonderful. <laughs> but if it brings together a lot of the things that you and I have been talking about, uh, Pierre. Because I wrote it after the Great Recession. I wrote it to uh, using the change in a discretionary. Uh, I wrote it after years of seeing clients 
um, have great joys, but also great distress for reasons involving money. And I had come to the conclusion that the money management portion of building wealth is for sure extremely important. Extracting the emotion of investing is key. Providing clients with ways to delve into their own understanding of themselves and of their relationship with money was the missing key to the whole equation that could really push a client into the prosperous and happy sphere, which has become my new motto, be prosperous and happy. So um, I think we have to have these discussions with our clients now where we truly ask them, what is your authentic relationship with money? Describe it to me. Tell me what makes you happy with your money or conversely, what makes you unhappy. And let's right. work with that. And of course, this is, but I, when I talk about it, my courage out of everyone, uh, including my clients, and I had some webinar series during the pandemic on having a consciousness practice. Because in addition to, to being a, a martial artist, I'm a regular meditator. I've been meditating for off and on for 40 years, but intensely for the past 15 years. And it's key to understanding yourself and understanding what truly makes you happy. Because, right. you know, we could work on financial plans for people. We can get them set up to go from A to B. But if B isn't really the place that's going to make them happy, but it's some kind of societal or partner-induced notion. Uh, well, this is where I should be going with my money. I should have this kind of house. Now I need a cottage because everybody's getting cottages. And of course, there's the electric car and this and that. But, you know, you have to go through that exercise and you have to have these conversations about money. So I've, I, put, I wrote my book to bring all of these elements together and to remind people that the discipline to go from A to B and work through these elements um, has to be worked on the same way selling the woods a black belt has to go through the different colored belts to become a black belt. Yeah. So you have to, I mean, it takes time, it takes patience, it takes discipline, right? Well, it takes takes work. It comes back to what we were talking about right at the beginning, right? It's, It's discipline, it's discipline. And discipline, or I'll, I'll rephrase it as grit, it's an exhaustive quality. From the time you get up to the time you go to bed, your willpower or your grit is continually decreasing. <laughs> yeah. So you have to know the decisions that you want to make, make the best ones earlier in the day, and understand the fact that you're not going to reach lofty goals or prosperity and happiness without having continued discipline in your life because you can be rich as we know you can be rich one day and the next year not you can be happy one day and the next year not um so 
it's not like once you're there, you need to stop. You, you can stop working on it. You can't. And I try to present it in my book as, as something that doesn't need to sound ominous or like, oh, I could never do it. And, you know, you do it. It's one thing for you to say, but I could never do it. Um, I try, I make it sound like, listen, you know, anybody can do it. And if you're not disciplined, then you're leaving a lot of unused potential on the table that is only going to add to your frustration of, I could have done this, I could have done that, I could have bought this, I could have bought that. Well, just to come back to your, your, uh, one of your next to last points, what, what have been some of the silver linings of the pandemic for you? There's been several and one, which you sort of alluded to earlier was that for me, it was my call to action to be there for my clients with everything that I've cultivated over the past more than 30 years to help them be prosperous and happy. And it was like, I felt it was my mission to work with clients and even go above and beyond that with the webinar series on, you know, how to navigate to the pandemic. So it, it, for me, it just gave me such a, a, a hazel that, you know, as yeah. we say in French, uh, that it was very fulfilling. Um, the other thing that um, it gave me was certainly more flexibility to to work from home. Not that I necessarily needed to in the sense that my kids are grown up now, but um, it really put to the test everything I've been telling people over the past three, three several years on, yeah. on how, to, how to be happy, how to be disciplined, how to stay healthy. So, um, yeah, I definitely, definitely did that. And then from a family standpoint, even though I no longer have young children, um, it was really a deep family time for me. And right. my, hus my husband works in the um, medical field. He's a, he's a physician. And so COVID was first and foremost on his line through this. And yeah. we had, you know, we, I saw my kids more during the pandemic than I've seen them <laughs> prior to, <laughs> and, uh, and we, yeah. we just had a whole bunch of family meals where we kind of revisited what's important to us, what's important in society right now, how we can help. So, so yeah. And, and it was maybe too, like a, a test of a continuation of my investment principles. You know, you don't bail in the market uh goes down quick and fast and yep. if anything you know i was fairly uh quick to continue to add to equity after we uh we had the big pullback in april 2020 and in my mind there was no question that with the amount of um money that was getting thrown into the financial system globally uh that we would have a, a rebound that would pay off for investors and it has well, uh, kudos to you, Mary. That's, that's wonderful. You know, I, I think it was, you know, it, it, it was such a, uh, such a high speed test of, of, you know, resilience, um, you know, and, and, you know, really a behavioral risk that, you know, what, a, what a, 
you know, what a year, what a, what a, what an 18 months it's been. Thank you for sharing your, uh, your thoughts. So Mary, one of the things that, that, that happened during the pandemic for you was that you recently started your own foundation. And so tell us about what precipitated that and, you know, why would someone want to do that? And, you know, what's the benefit? Well, thank you for asking the question because it was, I, it was fairly an important gesture for me and my husband because it's our foundation. It's the Mary Hagerman Luigi Lepanto Foundation. And um, we have always had a regular giving strategy, but uh, without necessarily going through a foundation. And the hardships that people were encountering during the pandemic, including the uh, charitable organizations that we normally give to, was, was just striking. And right. in addition, we were the lucky ones, certainly I was, to be able to work easily from home, to have a lot of money invested in stuff that all went up. And right. uh, I have some holdings, and I spoke about this in an article that was published in um, Investment Ex Executive. Um, I've had you know, a variety of holdings, but especially technology positions in ETFs that have just like kept going up and up and up. And I often use these, um, these uh, stocks to give to charity. So with Raymond James, we have the possibility of creating our own foundation and we can have the foundation actually transfer money into it. So for positions that have gained a lot in value, there's a real tax benefit to that, won't necessarily go into it, but have the tax benefit of transferring um, over stocks to the foundation. And I can still continue to invest in my own portfolios in my foundation and use right. the foundation in different ways. Um, for example, you know, to give to the regular causes that I give to, but I can actually organize events and use my foundation, have people contribute uh, to my foundation so that I can turn around and give money to a specific organization. So I had actually. And if this was so touching, um, I had a client who was, uh, who passed away quite recently and she called me over with her husband and she said, you know, I, my husband's going to have so much money after this. She said, what are, what can we do? I want to give money away. I want it, but I want it to be meaningful. And I told her, I said, you know, I just finished creating a foundation for myself and my husband. You can create a foundation as well that will keep your, uh, your spirit alive uh, forever. And you can use it to contribute, to have your family continue to contribute to causes that you believe in. So I've known about the, the foundation possibilities prior to COVID, obviously, but COVID was, was really the trigger. It was just like, mm -hmm. oh, it's, it's got to happen now because there's just too much that needs to be done. And I have the perfect tools. I had this, the stocks that have, you know, tripled, quadrupled over the past couple of years. 
And then I also have the technology through Raymond James to have a really interesting foundation that right. I can work with and use it. It'll be on my website as well and uh, use it for, for helping out clients in their particular causes too. So. It's very exciting. I, 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 uh, I mean, I, 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 you know, admittedly, I was very intrigued by the idea. I've, I think over the years, you know, the subject has, you know, crossed our desk, uh, many times and, and sometimes, you know, maybe in the past when, when it was beyond my, my ability to sort of comprehend, you know, why, what's the meaning of this or, or that I just didn't have the, the, the energy or the energy economy to, <laughs> to, to, to devote, you know, more than a, you know, fleeting glance at the subject. Um, but I think when you brought it up the other day, when we talked, um, I, I have to admit, I was really intrigued by it. It's, it's, it's a really novel way to, to, um, to give and to, and to do it in a, in a productive way, personal, personally, you know, at the personal or at the company, you know, as a company, um, I love the way that you, that, that, and this is something that's echoed in your book as well, but I love the way that, that, and I'm, I believe I'm quoting you, but you've said that this is the ultimate expression of a healthy relationship with money, which is to give for the satisfaction of doing good. Absolutely. And, Thank you, Pierre. You got yeah. that right. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. And, and as you said earlier, the pandemic has has forced all of us to think much more profoundly about issues yeah. that perhaps in the past or pre-COVID we would have just given fleeting thought to, right? But people who are at an age, at a wealth stage where they can, where they're inclined to think about leaving a legacy, I mean, COVID was definitely ripe, you know, farther for, for, for looking at, well, how can I do it? There's all these people that need help. How can I best help, right? So, and we help with our money. We help with our time too. But uh, yeah. to have been in a situation where things are getting worse for a lot of people, but the markets were going up, it just made it so easy to help using money at this point um, and in a tax efficient manner. Because obviously you don't get uh, taxed on the capital gain and it adds to your charitable receipt. So, um, yeah, you know, I think we're, we're not finished with this pandemic. We're slowly coming mm -hmm. out of it, but I really encourage everyone to continue the deep thinking in many ways on, you know, on their work, on their life on their objectives and on their legacy. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's, it's that universal question, you know, what is the meaning of life? What are we, what are we here for? And when, you know, when you reach a, when you, when you can, when you can attain a certain level of, of success and, and, uh, you know, both, you know, personal success and financial success, you reach a point where where, you know, you start to wonder, you know, what, what does this all mean? What is the, what was the point of all that? And, and, you know, and then, you know, you, you're thinking of your, your legacy, your children, and, and then you're thinking about, you know, what the, you know, what impact you can have on the world. 
Uh, and I love the way that you, you know, you described your, your uh, client who, who was, um, you know, explaining that, uh, she wanted to, because they were, you know, her, she and her husband were coming into an inheritance that, um, she wanted to do something meaningful with that. And then to be able to help your client express that ability, express that, that, that purpose, um, is also very gratifying. And I mean, that's sort of, you know, you're, you're really sort of touching on, on so many important areas of life that are so much uh, more meaningful than just, you know, how can I make more money in the market? And so Mary, thank you so much for, for sharing all this today. It's been such a great conversation. I, I think we could easily go on for, <laughs> for, uh, you know, a few more hours. There's so many things that, that, uh, I had, I actually had more questions, but uh, you know, um, why don't we save it for another episode? Sure. We can, we can, uh, we can talk anytime here. It's great talking to you. You have fabulous questions and I thank you for reading my book oh, and you. understanding <laughs> it. <laughs> you know? Well, so, it's a terrific book. I, I recommend it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I recommend it to everyone. I hope, I hope our conversation today is inspirational, especially to women who are thinking of getting into this business. I think, I think, you know, you've done, you like it, it I, I'm amazed by how much you've accomplished in your career, how much you've done, all the, the inroads you've made, all the hurdles you've jumped. I think, I think that, that, that anybody listening to this, um, so much gets taken for granted when you see a successful person mm -hmm. or when you see someone, um, very few people actually stop to take a moment and reflect and think, you know, what did that person, what did you have to do to get there? Uh, that's why I love those questions. I love, I love asking about, you know, about careers and decisions. How did you do that? What made you think that way? Um, I think those are the most meaningful conversations that, that we can have. So thank you. Thanks again, Jay. Yeah.